Welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International. And this week, we're talking about mental health. Today, we have many voices on this podcast. I'm very grateful to be joined yet again by Caitlin Bishop, who co-hosts these podcasts with me. And today, we welcome back our excellent colleague, Elliot Bendinelli. Elliot last year did some fascinating research on mental health websites and the data that they collect and share on you. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Elliot so he can discuss what he did. Thank you, Gus. So last year, Privacy International published a report called Your Mental Health for Sale. And the main focus of this report was looking at website providing information about mental health and depression and how they were tracking their users. The report focused on two specific aspects. The first one is that when you're visiting a website, there might be third parties and trackers included in the page. And these third parties are going to collect certain informations about you. In the first place, they're going to get the URL. So if the website you're visiting is mymentalhealth.com, am I depressed? This is an information that they're going to collect. But they might also obtain more information, say, if you've been visiting other websites where the same third parties are included, they will be able to have an overview of your browsing history. The problem mostly that we identified is that these trackers are here for marketing and advertising purposes. So they're using this information to target you with advertising that they believe is relevant, which can be pretty problematic when we're talking about sensitive data. The second thing we looked at was depression tests. So for those who are not familiar with depression tests, the idea is that you're answering a certain number of questions about how you're feeling. So have you been eating a lot lately? Is your mood high or uh, are you having a good day? Have you been buying a lot of things? And this sort of question will help you to assess whether or not um, you're likely to be depressed and whether you should consult with a doctor. And The problem we observed with some of those depression tests is that they were sharing answers again with third parties and trackers that are not mentioned anywhere. So you would take a test without knowing that other organizations than the one providing the website might access this information. Yeah. And so when I was really, really depressed, I took about five or six different depression quizzes because I think this is something I shared with a lot of depressed people is that it can feel like you're just bad at dealing with life. Like it's almost comforting that you might have depression because, you know, that would be something medical professionals can deal with. And so taking lots of different depression quizzes was like a way of saying, oh, cool. Maybe I'm not, you know, inherently doomed. I have like a thing. And I took lots of them because the answer saying, yes, we're very depressed, please seek medical help, felt too easy. None of which is logical because when you're depressed, you're not that logical. But I remember a lot of the questions and they're things like, you know, how often have you felt like you've let everyone you know down recently? Is it not at all? Is it a couple of days or is it every day? And that's deeply personal information that you don't necessarily want anyone knowing, particularly when you're depressed and you don't want to talk to anyone about it. So the notion that this tool, which is 
really quite useful is kind of being subverted to this other purpose is so disturbing. And it's what I think when I read Elliot's report was the thing that freaked me out the most. And today we're lucky to welcome Dr. David Creep AK, Head of Applied Learning at the Mental Health Foundation, a leading UK charity in mental health, to talk about this report and to ask questions that we might have around this topic. Welcome, Dr. Creep AK. Lovely, thank you. So first of all, I would like to have your opinion, David, on why do you think access to this type of information, so online information about mental health and depression matters, because that's kind of the basis of this report. I think there are a lot of issues raised by this, and, and I think I might even go a little bit further in areas where I think there is also concern, and that is the increasing number of apps that are purporting to support people with different diagnoses or, or different mental health needs or, or promoting well-being. So alongside the data captured by websites, I would also be interested in people having a much better understanding of the data that's captured by apps that they may be freely entering just as sensitive data into. The first thing I would say is that this is deeply sensitive data. All health data is sensitive, but I think given historically how people have been treated on the basis of a psychiatric diagnosis, on the basis of how broader society have perceived their mental health, Health. It's information that people with particular psychiatric diagnoses, particular psychiatric conditions, are very used to experiencing discrimination. And having that information, uh, which people might assume to be private, widely distributed and widely available to others, whether that be for marketing information or other reasons, I think people would be worried by. It raises an awful lot of issues, and I, I welcome any discussion that helps people to think a little bit more carefully about how they understand their own information and how it's used, but also how governments and other bodies regulate the collection and dissemination of this kind of information and data. You're absolutely right. It's fascinating to hear that this sort of discriminating based on mental health issues or simply on this sort of sensitive health information is something that's observed kind of outside of the online world because the broader context for us in this study is actually about this, about the collection of personal information, in this particular case, health information, and how it can be used to make decisions about you. So fundamentally, this is all about providing or serving targeted advertising. And this in itself can be problematic because it means that if as a, uh, an ad tech company, as a data broker, you know a person is vulnerable and they have mental health issue, they're probably going to be more interesting for some advertisers with malicious intent, whether it's the examples you were mentioning, talking about well-being, or if it's about gambling or just taking advantage of a person in a vulnerable situation. And so, yeah, I find that really interesting that this is not limited to an online action world and that what's happening with this ad tech ecosystem and the advertising ecosystem is actually just a replication of what's going on in the world already. And the second thing we were trying to prove, obviously, is that this kind of data actually can be used outside of advertising. And that's one of the major challenges of 
the collection of personal data. It's seeing this type of information ending up in a data broker database that might be called by an insurance company or by a bank to see if you can access a mortgage or if your insurance should be increased. So I find your remarks uh, fascinating. I think I guess my next question is uh, coming back to the content again a little bit because we took this focus on mental health websites and depression test quiz because we knew there would be sensitive information. And you already mentioned that you have some concerns about apps and websites. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? So do you think like in the first place, do you think those website and apps can actually be useful or do you just see them as a threat? Oh, I think they absolutely can be useful. And I think intelligent data and useful algorithms, even sort of automated algorithms can be very useful in supporting mental health. So I've done a lot of work around self-management and peer support, predominantly in the face-to-face world, where we have found people have got enormous support by being brought together with other people with similar experiences, but also just basic things like if someone notices that their friend is becoming a little bit withdrawn, then yeah, actively going out and inviting them out for a cup of coffee, cup of tea, or a walk or something like that, whatever is pr- appropriate. And obviously, under current circumstances, different things will be appropriate. Mm-hmm. That is immensely valuable. And, and one of the things that we started exploring, yeah, I'm not an app developer, so this hasn't particularly gone any further, but one of the things that we started talking about, and one of the reasons why we started to have some of the discussions that you and I are having now is that we thought there would be some prima facie value in looking at people's, the kind of data that their their phone, for example, would automatically start collecting, and then saying to someone, well, how would you feel if your phone noticed that you hadn't been out for four days, that uh, your phone sent a text to your friend saying, we think so-and-so is feeling a bit withdrawn. Why not get in touch, make a call or invite him or her out for a coffee? And clearly, that's a very basic piece of, of, of tech. Actually, it's entirely possible with pretty much any handset that people have now to do that. And, and I would argue that has potential value. Another example of some quite sophisticated work that has been done that I think is valuable is around people with perhaps a bipolar diagnosis who have patterns of damaging spending when they go into a high phase of bipolar. Uh, mm-hmm. And there have been some, some some really interesting work on algorithms that analyze credit card spend and then interrupt spend that is symptomatic of unhelpful behavior as the result of a particular phase of of bipolar. And again, I would argue that that has enormous potential value, but there are strong ethical issues about who controls that process, who owns that data, and where it sits. So classically, what might happen with someone, and and it has happened to, to friends of mine, is that they would go on a spending spree by loads of stuff that they had no use for, no value for, and then their credit card would be stopped and they wouldn't even be able to buy their groceries. Now, if there is a, a an intelligent way of cutting out, for example, this friend of mine lived in a landlocked county in England and she bought a, an ocean-going yacht 
Uh, and, you know, that, that, that was A, a lot of money and B, absolutely useless and C, quite typical of a kind of spend that she did when she was going through a particular phase. Now, if there is a way of automatically stopping that, but still allowing her to buy her weekly grocery in a supermarket, then I would argue that providing she is in control of that process, that is a really good and beneficial thing. Now, there are so many worrying flip sides to that that I think touch on what you're talking about. The one thing we know is that data use is to some extent inevitable and to polarize it into a it's a good thing or a bad thing really does lose the sophistication of the argument. Oh, absolutely. I think there are two very important points I want to draw from what you're saying. Like the first one is obviously it's the question of consent. And most of the things we observe in the first place, they happen before people can even do anything. I mean, like the technology we used was opening web pages, not doing anything, just checking what was going on. And yet like trackers and third parties were being loaded without any action. So this idea that users don't know that this data collection is happening is problematic. And the second one is when you're talking about apps and about asking people if they're okay sharing their data or automated decision systems that can help them I think uh, this is kind of where the tricky question happens of where do you draw the limit? Like, how does privacy basically plays into this? So when you're saying, I'm okay, you can use my data for this, what does this imply? Is this just for the purpose of the app? Or are you also going to do some meta-analysis, analytics? Are you going to use this for research? And, and, uh, and this ties into the first question, which is like, there is a lack of transparency on how these data are being used. And um, yeah, I'm quite curious to hear your views about this. I, I think you touched on some really important points. We, we ran discussion groups with people who had a pre-existing psychiatric diagnosis or were a family carer for someone who had a, a diagnosis. And some people, of course, had both of those roles. And we took them through a number of scenarios about the use of digital data. And we were considering the data that you talk of that's taken from websites automatically, the data that they might use if they were using an app to support their mental health, but also the data that is routinely collected by health professionals, because in the UK, your consultation with a, a GP forms part of a research data set unless you actively opt out of that. And so there are a whole range of sources this data might come from, and most people are simply not aware of that. So the first question we would raise is, who is responsible for improving the health literacy and mental health literacy of the broader population to make sure that people understand that this data collection is currently happening, that they should be taking a view on that, and they should think carefully about what their view might be. So we, we've had some discussions specifically around that. And what we found was that people took a very different view about who they would give their data to, depending on who the person or organization was and what their purpose was. Uh, and we think it's really important that when we talk about consent for data, in exactly the same way that when we talk about consent for treatment, it is not a one-off binary thing. You're not signing away the use of your data 
for everyone for life. But uh, mm-hmm. I would argue that there is a really strong case for something like dynamic consent. And by that, I mean that there should be explicit discussions about each piece of data collection and each piece of data use. And that just because you agree to some data being used for some purpose should not imply and others should not infer that that means you're giving broader consent for either that data to be used for a greater range of purposes or for (laughs) data that hasn't been discussed to be used for the purpose that you've already said, I can use this particular piece of, of data for. And, and and some examples where people thought they were very happy for their data to be used. A, a lot of the people we spoke to said they were happy for their data to be used for anonymous research for local health organizations or regional health organizations to make decisions about allocating resources. So, for example, they thought that it was legitimate that GPs who knew that they had 20 or 50 people on their books with a diagnosis of depression shared that number of people with depression more broadly so that you could tell that in this county there are you know, a thousand people with a diagnosis of depression. Therefore, if there are things that can be done at a county level that we know help reduce the risk of depression in a population, then that is encouraged and resources are provided for that. So broadly speaking, people were in favor of that as as a use of data. When it came to sharing the same data with a private company to sell or even just freely provide a service for depression, the views changed somewhat. So not everybody was against that. Mm -hmm. Some people took the view that that would be useful and they would be happy for someone who is promoting a service for depression, even if it's a commercial service, to be aware that they had that diagnosis. But the balance distinctly changed. So there were a lot of people who took the view that they were happy for their GP to pass data on to the state for purely health provision or planning reasons, but who would not be prepared for that to then be passed to uh, even statutory commercial partners who would be supplying a service or planning a service. So, you know, the same people, the same data, but for a different purpose, people had a different view about what was and wasn't appropriate. And it makes sense. But I don't think any of the people that we spoke to were aware of the sheer quantity of data that was routinely being collected. And, you know, and when we were giving them examples of what was collected, we weren't getting anything like as sophisticated as the examples that you're giving. Because, you know, frankly, some of this research was two years ago and it hadn't even occurred to me. We were very much thinking in terms of developing our own applications, wondering how people would respond to that, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at government policy on data use for service planning, but also the, you know, the increased role of the private sector and how people might feel about that. So we hadn't even touched on the much less transparent collection of much more sophisticated data of the type you're talking about. So I think people would be even more surprised and significantly more worried about that than the the kind of data that we were talking about. Did anyone say whether they would be put off from interacting with a service or information or anything like that by any form of data collection? Like, did anyone say 
it made them feel less likely to engage. Oh, yes, absolutely. And there was some really particular concern, and this was largely about the discrimination that that they had experienced previously from people who made assumptions about them as people because of their diagnosis or because of services they were using. And that was in a social context, but also in terms of, you you briefly mentioned financial institutions, insurance companies, banks, credit agreements, even things like travel visas, driving licenses, all of these people were concerned that they might experience discrimination if information about their diagnosis or their service use was shared. That is exactly the point I wanted to make, how people were, in certain cases, less inclined in sharing their data with private companies. I think even if you're trying to read all of the privacy policies of uh, the different trackers and third parties on this website, it is extremely hard, if not impossible, to understand how your data might be used. And that's, for us, one of the key problems with this targeted advertising ecosystem on one side, once your data has been collected, you have almost no way to reclaim it. I mean, we are lucky in Europe because we have GDPR and you can do data access requests or you can ask for deletion of your data, but like the amount of work, and we've done this quite a few times just to find the companies, provide them with the right identifier is just gigantic. And the effort is most of the time not worth it because as soon as you start browsing again, you, your profile is recreated. And so... To be able to understand first the number of actors collecting your data and second, how it might be used. Because once it's out there, you you don't know what's going on. Like a data broker might buy it. We've talked about financial institutions, uh, banks, but there are plenty of organizational companies that might be interested in this data. I mean, like one of the most horrifying examples that we've seen is that location data collected from smartphone apps being sold to federal agencies in the US, either to monitor people during a Black Lives Matter protests or to enforce border control. And so that's definitely outside of the scope of what people would expect when they're using an app and just saying, yeah, sure, you can have access to my location, your, your weather app, so I'll, I'll give you this. So I think this, this idea of, that you were trying to defend that people know what the data is going to be used is is primordial and that's definitely something that's currently uh, missing from online websites and apps and especially in a context where we have data protection laws and in theory this sort of stuff should be unlawful i mean that's definitely not what we have observed now what i found interesting in what you said is when it's come to pseudonymous data because obviously when we're talking about identifying data the, the risks are much more concrete but Anonymous and pseudonymous data, in some cases, like the, the example you gave with a GP just giving a broad number is fine. And in other cases, it, it might still reveal a lot about people. And again, like I think it's, it has a lot to do with people's understanding of how this type of information works. I mean, there are studies using three location points you can identify someone. And I don't have a concrete example with diagnosis, but I would imagine situation where one would be able to re-identify people. So when you were discussing this idea of an app, how are you balancing this, this sorts of concerns of like what kind of data you're going to collect? Were you basically trying to apply things such as data minimization? So trying to collect as little as possible, trying to have control over the data that you had, because there are obviously like security issues as well. Your database could be breached, for example. 
the first thing to say is that I think one of the reasons why we didn't go on and develop this was just because it became increasingly difficult to do it in a way that we felt secure and comfortable doing it. Oh. I mean, genuinely, I, I still think there is enormous value, but for all the reasons that you've outlined, it, 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 you, you need such incredible technical skills to do yeah. this well and appropriately. We're a good quality UK charity, but we're not a high-tech company. We are probably more skilled in understanding the issues than technically able to manage, to, to, to manage them if we did I would honestly did not that. trust any high-tech companies in this sort of yeah, issue. Yeah. No, quite so. <laughs> so so it's, I, I just, I, just to throw one more thing that, came up routinely when we were asking people about data sharing. And that was because I mischievously always threw it in as an option for an agency who you would share it with. How would you feel about your data going to criminal justice, police, courts, and other similar organizations? And, you know, the reason I would say this is important is because we know uh, in the UK, for example, there is a problem with people who have a psychiatric diagnosis ending up in the criminal justice system. Hmm. And there is a risk that that data might be used badly. And I would have said that some of this was hypothetical until the uh, discussions about the police being given access to the self-isolation data coming from the yes. government's COVID app. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's... One of the questions that we asked and one of the agencies they were genuinely not happy for their information to be shared with was criminal justice agencies. And again, the other area that we, we talk quite a lot about in terms of data, and, and this, again, you've been talking about people seeking information around mental health and support and depression tests, but there's a huge explosion in genetics and genomics and direct consumer genetic testing. Not so much in Europe, but because of the nature of the internet, it's quite possible for anyone to get some online genetic testing, some of which claim to provide you with information about your physical and mental health and its risk. And pretty much all of them, with one or two honorable exceptions, own that data. Once you uh, once you do those tests, now that's not all of them, but you know you have to do exactly the same job that you've just done in terms of the data collection, going yeah. through their terms and conditions yeah. to work out who actually owns your genetic data. So I think there is enormous potential benefit from the relationship between genetics and mental health, but there are enormous risks as well, absolutely enormous risks as well. And it's an area where people just need to understand what they're getting into. And as I think you said very early on, what we're talking about is often desperate, vulnerable people who are at risk of being taken advantage of. So, you know, we should be, as a state, protecting vulnerable people from this kind of thing, not facilitating it. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And uh, and yeah, I also completely agree that the first step that these type of uh, companies or organization should take when they're developing this technical solution is an assessment. It seems that it's what you've done correctly of just being able to assess and say, what are we going to do with this data? What are the limits? And unfortunately, that's not really what the tech ecosystem looks like right now. It's more, we're still following Facebook motto of move fast and break things, unfortunately. 
But the genetic example, I had no idea this even existed, and it's fascinating. It does remind me of another issue we're working on, which is facial recognition, and where one of the concern is that if there is a breach in one of those databases, so uh, either it's one that has the mapping point of your face on one that has genetic information about you, you can't do anything to change that. It's not like your address or your phone number or your email or your password. It's something that is set in stone and you can't do anything about it. So once it's been breached and other people have access to it, there is no coming back. And that's especially worrying in the case of uh, genetic information used to make diagnosis. So thank you for, for this example. I think I have one last question, and it's uh, bringing back the discussion a little bit more to the depression and mental health. And uh, I would like to hear what advices you have when it comes to seeking help and seeking information for people that think they uh, might have mental health issues or that might be diagnosed. Because, I mean, the problem for us is that most of the website we've seen, we wouldn't recommend to anyone, even our worst enemy but we don't necessarily have an answer of what people should be doing in this case. And we don't, we really don't want to push people away from seeking help. So what would be your advice on this? We would always advise people to choose reliable sources. Now, despite my natural cynicism to the state as an agency, then the place I would always start with in the UK would be the NHS website and NICE guidance. So we have a, an agency called NICE that makes recommendations for treatments for pretty much every kind of condition, physical and mental condition. And that is usually a really good evidence-based review of what does and mm -hmm. doesn't work for particular conditions. So there is always a danger in self-diagnosis in any case. So, uh, you know, my first advice would be if people are, are worried about their mental health to that extent, where they think they do have a clinical problem, they should seek some kind of professional help. If, however, you have general worries about mental health, anxiety, low mood, and so on, then Mental Health Foundation and, and other reliable charities are pretty good places to start. And what we would always do as an organization and what we would expect any respectable organization to do is do our own check for evidence and make sure that what we're suggesting is evidence-based, but also provide those references for people who, who would want to follow up uh, and check that evidence for themselves. Because it's quite easy to present what looks like quite respectable evidence and references. But, but what you'll find uh, a lot of the time is the research, even for good quality stuff, the research is funded by trade bodies who have an interest in selling you a particular thing. Hmm. And to take something that is completely removed from mental health, so I know I'm not going to get myself into legal problems, you know, if there were a piece of furniture that said, you will feel 20% less depressed if you buy this set of drawers, <laughs> and there's a lovely piece of research, and the research is funded by the Oak Furniture Council, <laughs> then it might actually be a perfectly good piece of work. And there may be something true in the fact that a nice set of drawers in a nice material might make you feel better. But if the only research that is provided to demonstrate that is funded by the Oak 
chest of drawers commercial support organization, then you'd be rightly suspicious. Yeah. If, however, there's a peer-reviewed paper published in The Lancet or the British Journal of Psychiatry that's done that research, then I'd take it more seriously. The other thing I would just add as a, as a note of caution is that even for well-intended support for mental health, you have to be a little bit careful because there are interventions that are effective for some conditions, but actually damaging for others. So even something like coffee, for example, Mm -hmm. coffee will reduce your risk of depression and low mood, but it will increase your risk of anxiety. (laughs) So I can't imagine any group of people in the high-tech company or a podcasting company don't have the odd drink of coffee. You'd be a very unusual group of people if you didn't didn't have coffee to keep you going. And, you know, what you need to know is that that's definitely elevating your mood. It's definitely stimulating your brain, but it may be elevating your risk of anxiety. So this kind of self-diagnosis, yeah, if you get that wrong, you may be identifying intervention that is effective for something, but Mm. not actually very useful for something else. So take, for example, mindfulness. Now, you can't walk through cyberspace without stumbling across dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of versions of mindfulness on either apps or websites. And if you look at the evidence, there is definitely evidence that will tell you that uh, mindfulness will help reduce anxiety. And it's good quality evidence. But there is also evidence that it will increase social anxiety. Hmm. And that's because it tends to get you to focus a lot on yourself which Mm. is fine for being in the moment, but actually if your issue is social anxiety, then what you really need to be doing is focusing on other people. And so, again, if you happen to come across a badly constructed anxiety website that mistook social anxiety for general anxiety and suggested mindfulness, it might be an intervention that makes your condition worse. Uh, hence the importance of getting a good diagnosis or to Absolutely. talk to professionals that are going to be able to guide you yeah. to the right direction. That was fascinating. I actually, I'm glad that you mentioned the NHS because one of the depression tests that we had, it was a, I think they call it self-assessment test that we tested. And um, that was sharing data with a third parties, like unidentified third parties was the NHS website. And after uh, all reports, they fixed it. And so various site is from more perspective, extremely clean and the data is only used by the NHS they have really clear guidelines so it's good to have one good example so thank you very much for your time and for your answers it was a pleasure to have you on this podcast and to learn so much It's an absolute joy. I mean, I think it's a fascinating area. It's one that we take very seriously. If you ever want to come back and have a discussion about um, the benefits of paranoia, which is very often dismissed as a psychiatric symptom, but has genuine value in society, then um, (laughs) that's a kind of topic in itself, because I think... I love that. It's a fascinating topic. And I think there would be people who might describe you as paranoid. (laughs) 
uh, and I, I, you know, I, I just take it and own it because I think, from my point of view, paranoia is a characteristic, a human trait that is of immense value if, if it doesn't get out of hand and become disabling. We are so going to have this discussion. I love the idea. If you ever want to do something on that, yeah. let me know, and I'd be delighted to come back and talk about that. Awesome. Excellent. Yes, please. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Caitlin and Elliot and Dr. David Creepay K for joining us. You can learn more about any of the issues that we discussed today by coming to our website at privacyinternational.org slash podcast, where we will include links to the various reports and studies that Elliot and Caitlin were discussing. You can also go to action.privacyinternational.org to sign up to our mailing lists to find out more about these issues and more about our podcasts. And you can like and subscribe to the podcast on the various platforms you use. And it's also available directly from our website. Generally, just come to our website and sign up to our mailings. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, YouTube, and Facebook. The music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. Awesome. Okay, cool. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. you. That was awesome. See (laughs) y'all.